0: Hello everyone and welcome back. This episode will air the fourth part of a Brian Schaefer story and in this episode I'll go through the majorly known sequence of events that occurred in the time after Brian's disappearance and I'll go through them up to this day. So I'll conclude the episode with uh, a notion of possible theories and also possible scenarios of uh, what could have happened to Brian. Uh, This will be centered around the recounting of my story provided in the episodes that I've released until now. So when discussing theories uh, in Brian's case, it's uh, pretty hard to reach a final conclusion, as you may be aware. However, I've noticed that if you sort of hit a brick wall when trying to figure out a plausible answer, either you're looking in the wrong place or uh, the answer is just in front of you. So to paint new paths with a clumsier brush only shades and obscures the few facts that are available. And to circle around the details and stage further riddles in this case only complicates the task. So let's see how this turns out later on. And also in remembrance to Brian, this episode marks almost to the day, the 15 year mark since Brian went missing. And may we receive some kind of sign of resolution in this case sooner and now much rather than later. So here are the major events that unfolded after that April Fool's Day in 2006. 11th of May 2006 There's a break-in at Brian's apartment on King Avenue 200 block. Alexis told that the police had called her at 3am and that she was asked to go over to the apartment to check if anything was missing. Once there, she noticed that inside the apartment there are a few gadgets missing. Only the television as well as a few DVDs. But uh, Brian's valuable guitars, for example, are still there. The weekend before, NBC had aired a new story about Brian's disappearance. But at the same time, it was admitted that a couple of other neighboring apartments had also been hit in the same way. So in the end, this was believed that it had no personal connection to Brian. But it was a random break-in. In uh, July 2006... In a concert held in Cincinnati the group uh, Pearl Jam which uh, Brian was a big fan of uh, the lead singer reads out details about Brian Schaefer to the audience and he reads this from a missing poster so this got pretty big at the time and in connection to this both Brian and Alexis had purchased tickets to go to this uh, concert but since Brian went missing Alexis put the tickets up for sale and she donated the money received to the reward for Brian. So I'll let you hear a clip of this just for the sake of it. It's actually on YouTube but since you're listening, here it is but, uh, of, uh, last April
1: this last April uh a young man named Brian Schaefer kind of went missing. He's uh he looks like he's in his 20s, he's uh, 6'2", real handsome guy. And uh, he's got a Pearl Jam tattoo on his upper right arm. And uh, he's going to med school. Uh, you may have heard about this already. If you, if you have, I apologize, but I, I don't think it would do any harm to uh, to bring it again to everybody's attention. If you, have, if you look into this, uh, it's out there, uh, That's
0: his name, Brian Schaefer. So in uh, September of 2006, after Alexis had crawled into bed, she did what she always used to do. It was sort of her night ritual, uh, was to call Brian's phone. So the voicemail that uh, Brian left was uh, the last thing that... Uh, She used to listen to. And uh, they had uh, continued to pay for their phone subscription. For symbolic reasons. And uh, this night. Instead of going directly to the answering machine. The uh, telephone started ringing. The phone started to ring. And after that. The phone went to voicemail. Just as if the phone was on. And no one answered. So she mentioned that. That sound had been the most beautiful sound she'd ever heard. But at the same time, she was almost terrified because what would she say if someone else answered? And she kept calling more and more. And each time, the rings went through, but no one answered or picked up. So she contacted Randy, who started to call himself. And uh, Randy also in turn contacted the uh, the other investigators, and they also started to call. So each time for several hours, Brian's phone rang three times at least. And it continued to ring almost the entire weekend, actually. And once again, the Columbus police, they investigated this. And I can mention the phone pings, what happened in connection to that, uh, was that... When the police went through the call history, sent and received messages and so forth. They noticed that uh, it seemed to be that Brian had uh, that Brian's telephone was uh, turned off uh, on that uh, early morning Saturday. So they could see that during the evening, Brian had had a close telephone contact with a large number of people and this was sort of checked Uh, but there had been many people out celebrating and lots of students were also home Uh, were also on home visits because of the spring break holiday so what the uh, Columbus police did was that they uh, engaged and paid the phone company singular three thousand dollars to track and monitor Brian's phone uh, for a month. And uh, and a month is probably because it was assumed that there was battery in the phone. It wouldn't probably last longer than a month. So uh, nowadays we're used to like one day or maybe two days. But uh, back in those days, the phone actually lasted for much longer in terms of the battery capacity and all that. So the operator helped CPD go through the call history and all of that. And it, and it was known that Meredith and Clint had tried to call Brian at 0201 on that Saturday. But that the call had gone straight to voicemail. So after checking with Singular, they stated that the phone appeared to have been switched off. And then it was sort of assumed that the phone had remained turned off. So no more calls were made or messages were made. On Brian's phone after that night. But uh, they tried to ping the phone to see if it was possible to locate where Brian's phone could be. He had had a sort of a folding phone uh, of the brand uh, Verizon. And at the time, very few phones had these GPS receivers that we are so accustomed to today. But they sent out these called pings, so normally the phone responds if it's on and charged by a response signal back from the nearest uh, tower. And Monday night they get the response back with two pings. So in theory you can uh, try to position a phone by triangulating the strength of this response signal between the towers and to sort of figure out where the phone is. But in this case, the investigators sort of examined, not by this triangulation, but around the area where the tower had been that had received the strongest signal. So both pings were in the Columbus area on the west side and on Kenny Road, Lane Avenue. And the pings sort of caused some confusion to law enforcement and the detectives. Because uh, they had assumed that the phone was off. That the phone was turned off. So when they got these pings. They were sort of. uh, They didn't know what to make of it. If this was valid or not. But the mobile operator. They provided them. With this information that there were two pings. In these two areas. And uh, the police went and checked it out. And they didn't find anything there. But more than this. We sort of don't get to know, so so in September when the phone started ringing three times or more, uh, the Columbus police once again contacted Singular who investigated what really happened and why Brian's phone suddenly started to ring after many months of inactivity. So using the same procedures that they used in uh, April. Uh, pings were sent out to Brian's phone and this time they also got a ping they also got a response from a tower 14 miles west of Columbus in a suburb called Hilliard and the response from Singular at this time was that uh, this was most likely due to a computer glitch sort of a data uh, disruption they argued that uh, due to the fact that there was a high load on this tower that should have rejected the call in the first place, it instead uh, proceeded to another tower and caused this deviation between the towers that caused the phone to to ring before moving on to voicemail. so once again sort of this inconclusive uh, data that uh, in the end only made the uh, police more confused and they made them more confused than they were from the beginning so. In August of 2007, there were several areas that uh, were searched. These areas were near Columbus. They began searching in the western part of the city, and then they headed towards the town of Hilliard. So this was adjacent to the to these uh, towers in the western part of the city where they had had received these pings. So they basically went out there to check even more closely, and try to see whether they could locate something. But in the same time, uh, Randy had contacted this organization, it's called Texas Search, and he had spoken to the founder of this organization, uh, named Tim Miller, and Tim Miller had promised him that he would uh, go up to Ohio and help Randy look for Brian. So. Six people came up from the organization to Ohio, and they sort of helped to, to organize this uh, search. Unfortunately, though, the weather had been really bad, almost a storm in those days, so the attendance hadn't been the best. Uh, this uh, Texas search—they are—they are sort of in charge of the searches, but they are dependent that there is a turnout of volunteers, so. Unfortunately, due to the weather situation, uh, not so many people turned up uh, to help search. But there was, uh, in the beginning, they actually found some uh, bone parts, which were near some torn clothes. And that had attracted attention at an early stage. But they were later forensically analyzed by the police and it uh, turned out to be animal skeletons. On the 14th of September 2008, a powerful storm, Hurricane Ike, sweeps through the central parts of Ohio. At that time, Randy Schaefer was living in a house in Baltimore. And on Monday the 15th, Randy didn't show up for work at Midway Electric. And His employer manages to get hold of of a neighbor who heads out to Randy's house to check on him. This neighbor finds Randy. At the back of the house in the garden. He lies motionless on the ground under a large branch. That appears to have fallen from a tree. So Randy is unfortunately dead. He had been out looking for his estate. After the storm and uh, and was really unlucky. To be hit by this falling branch. So condolences poured in. With uh, many writing on social media. That they had met Randy. In the search of his son. And that uh, they had admired his tireless commitment to find Brian. And uh, now Derek became the only remaining member of the Schaefer family. And one person who had been helping the family since the beginning to find Brian, Laurie Davis, said that uh, we shouldn't let ourselves be knocked down by this, uh, by Randy's death. She had also been completely consumed by Brian's case. She had uh, seen Randy get interviewed in a news story and she felt uh, a great need to assist him. And her husband didn't understand why really. But her 13-year-old son had sort of reconciled with this. And he had even helped her take pictures when Lori had made her own research at Agletona Salona. And she largely took over from Randy. Trying to coordinate information about Brian's disappearance and spreading the word about his case, so she helped in setting up the website findbrianshafer.com and organized the March for the Missing in Ohio event, sort of an annual event around the date of Brian's disappearance, where people marched to keep the memory of missing persons from Ohio alive. And over time, Lori got to know Randy personally, and uh, Lori mentions that before Randy died in this weird accident that uh, she said that uh, she described him as a lost soul unable to find peace after his son's disappearance and he could call her like 10 times in one night and dwell and go over the details in Brian's case so she hoped that perhaps he had received some answers from where he now was. Later that month in September of 2008, Don Corbett, who was the private investigator that Randy had hired, he's been trying to get the Columbus police to force Clint to do a new run for a new polygraph test. And this time Clint's attorney, Neil Rosenberg, responds by emailing Don Corbett. And he writes that uh, the only burning issue for the authorities is Clint's refusal To take part in the lie detector test. That decision was based on my recommendation. And advice to Clint. Not because he has been misleading. Or has anything to hide. But because he simply has. Nothing new to tell. He's been completely upfront and honest from the beginning. And as far as Clint is concerned. The matter is closed. And then he went on to write. uh, If Brian is alive. Which is what I'm being led to believe. After talking to the investigators involved. It is Brian and not Clint, who is causing his family pain and suffering. Brian should come forward and end this. So Clint Florence was also asked to reply to this by the Lantern newspaper. And he commented that while he appreciated any efforts to determine what happened to Brian that night, he had to recline the request. And uh, Clint happened to misspell Brian's name also, and wrote Brain instead, by which the article had to indicate that they had corrected this with a sick. Don Corbett was later interviewed in the Lantern magazine. And later on when the uh, newspaper contacted the uh, detectives involved in Brian's case. To confirm what Neil Rosenberg's statement was that Brian could be alive. They uh, repeatedly declined to comment this. October in 2008. The Columbus Dispatch creates a an obituary for Andy Schaefer online and linked this obituary to a book of uh, condolence. And a post in this book caught the interest of Don Corbett, the private investigator, and this post read, To Dad, Love Brian, US Virgin Islands. So the Columbus police investigated this with the help of a web manager, To try to see where this post could have been written from. They also contacted the U.S. Virgin Islands. And sent pictures of Brian. And his case gained attention over there. And there were articles written in local newspapers. About his disappearance. And there was also a special hotline set up. To handle local calls. Uh, However. The investigation revealed that the post was written on a public computer. In Franklin County Library. On a computer computer. Without any specific requirements to be logged in. So at the end it was deemed like a sick joke. And later Don Corbett reaffirmed that uh, he had not been satisfied by the Columbus police investigation of Brian Schaefer. He mainly pointed to the refusal by CPD to share information and evidence from uh, Brian's case files. Don Corbett was of the opinion that CPD could have missed critical evidence that could have helped solve the case. And he attempted uh, thereafter to file a writ of mandamus to compel CPD to hand over records from the investigation. Such a writ, so it's actually kind of rare to finalize this sort of allowance, sort of this legal allowance. So then we jump to May, in 2018, and uh, and then it happened to be that uh, the tuna Saluna closed down after 14 years of operation, and all the furnishings are torn down, and all the premises are converted to offices, and some people had their hopes up that that Brian's remains could have been in the Aigletuna Saluna bar, but uh, they weren't. On uh, the 9th of April 2019. The Columbus police posted a tweet. We continue to hope that Brian is alive and well. And uh, in August of 2019, the lead detective in Brian Schaefer's case, John Hurst, goes into retirement after 33 years as a police officer and detective. He starts a detective agency and after him, the person who replaces him is uh, Detective Andrew Edwards, and in 2014 he was interviewed in the Columbus Monthly newspaper where an article described how Edwards had plowed through all the material in Brian's case several times over. And in terms of size, his uh, case files are bigger than many homicide cases in the state of Ohio, for instance. But uh, the actual video recordings from Daglituna Saluna and the Gateway Complex became like a favorite movie to him and he could say with 100% certainty that Brian never left the Gateway Building with the escalators and he also went on to say that uh, the Columbus Police were working on three theories but that he couldn't talk about them not even in general terms. So in February of uh, 2020 a photo that had been circling around the web depicted what looked like a homeless man, with a fair amount of resemblance to Brian Schaefer. And evidently this was a homeless American individual, and he had been wandering the streets of Tijuana in Mexico, when this photo was captured. And uh, this photo ultimately found its way to the Columbus police, who handed it over to the CYU, the Criminal Intelligence Unit, to try to clarify the image with a facial recognition, And as later revealed by a cold case agent working on Brian's case, the photo came back with a negative affirmation and the man in the photo hadn't been Brian. And in subsequent discoveries also showed that uh, Brian is not reported as endangered missing in case files, but his current status is uh, the more puzzling term, not a crime slash other service, suggesting only that his case is not closed but it's sort of status quo until pertinent leads are received and can be worked upon. So, on the 29th of March in 2021, the Ohio Attorney General's Bureau released an age progression photo of Brian Schaefer. And the CYU once again assisted in a portrait of what Brian might look like today, 15 years later. And the well known forensic artist, created this photo and she said that uh, she used photos of Brian Schaefer's parents and his brother to make Brian look like as if he'd aged. This was a very public announcement in Brian's case and has to be valued as such because it brings attention on his disappearance in general, but in the same uh, perpetual manner it was reported that few credible tips had been received on his case as of late and I've included a lengthier clip with the Ohio Attorney General Dave used made by NBC4 in connection to the release of this photo and what the Ohio Attorney General hoped it could achieve
2: This morning, they released a photo, an age progression photo of Brian Schaefer, who disappeared from Ohio State University campus area about 15 years ago. And it's really captivated and been a mystery ever since. Um, Attorney General, tell us a little bit about the case to begin with and what you guys hope this photo does for the investigation.
1: Well, we don't know what happened all those years ago and anybody who's ever gone to a 15th year high school reunion knows uh, how dramatically sometimes uh, people change in their appearance over time Uh, 15 years is a long time Uh, george bush was president Uh, jim trussell was coaching ohio state football so we're hoping that this updated photo will give people uh something to look at and Uh, If he's still out there, maybe we'll get a lead on it.
2: When's the last time we learned something new about this case? Um, I I remember the investigation and was reviewing it before we started to talk. It was such a thorough investigation um, with the video evidence and talking to Brian's friends. Have we learned anything new over the past even decade or so?
1: You know, uh, this is—I hate the term "cold case," but if there is such a thing, this is probably it. It caused quite a stir at the time, um, and then it's possible that uh, he's out there and alive and well. And if so, uh, perhaps this uh, this photograph will help to close the case. On the other hand. Um, Maybe it'll jog somebody's memory, maybe somebody that moved away and hadn't been thinking about the case, but remembers something about it that could help us. If it's not a uh, just a missing person, but something more serious, we can find out what's going on and, and develop a new lead out of it.
2: Why do you think this case continues to captivate the public and continues to draw even national attention, you know, through true crime podcasts and blogs and different things like that after all of these years?
1: Well, look, you've got a college kid, bright future in front of him. Uh, We see people go missing on purpose sometimes, but there's usually some kind of a backstory. Uh, We kind of don't see that here. It's just like that TV show Vanished, almost. And uh, so I I think it's something that at the core of our being bothers us because these kind of things are inexplicable.
2: Do you think people might feel a personal connection to Brian, whether he would be a friend or a, a family member, a son? You know, you just look at his picture and he was just such a vibrant young man.
1: He, he's such a, a vibrant young man and uh, a college student. Uh, I mean, who uh, doesn't look at that and think that could could have been my brother or my buddy at college or my son? Uh, and, uh, yeah, people think about those things.
2: Is there anything else that you want to add about this? And how can people, if this does jog somebody's memory, how can they get in touch with the proper authorities and I guess, what kind of tips would you potentially be looking for?
1: Well, first of all, if you do happen to recognize the age progressed photo and go, oh my gosh, the guy in the next cube, uh, please don't approach him. Uh, but the number that you see on your screen uh, would be exactly how to get in touch with the authorities. Uh, let them handle it.
0: The theories part. So what could have happened to Brian? And which are the three theories that the Columbus Police Department told us about, but refused to elaborate further on? If there still are three theories, we can be certain of two of them. In unprioritized order, the first is that foul play is behind Brian's disappearance. Brian accidentally encountered some type of crime, perhaps a fatal assault on the way home, and that he is deceased. The second theory is based on Brian escaping somewhere to leave his old life behind and is alive. We will come back to this. The third unspoken theory in missing persons cases is by law enforcement, normally ascribed to either suicide or accident. However, the lead detective has given his own stance on this and does not support the two. Initially, when gone missing, Brian's case gained national attention on television amongst else. However, the almost complete lack of evidence and traces led to his case cooling quite quickly. Several details were also long unknown to the public, and as an outsider in the case, it seemed extremely difficult to piece together something that could logically explain what had happened. The podcast Brian Schaefer, Dead or Alive, brought new information to the table. And Brian's case has also been boosted by the famous True Crime Garage podcast. The hosts of the podcast, Nick and the captain, are native to Columbus. So Brian disappeared on their home turf for them, you might say. And have had a closer relationship with his case than perhaps many other of the cases in their podcast. Internet and social media has also created a kind of comeback. Many seem to have found their way back to Brian Schaefer and on many threads on Reddit and other forums, it is discussed extensively. Here, theories range from that Brian was the victim of the smiley face killers, to that he was murdered inside a bar and carried out in garbage bags. If uh, we return and recapitulate the moment when Brian appears on the CCTV at 1.55, and then disappears from view. In the interview with Brighton, recorded in the Brian Schaefer Dead or Lie podcast, who along with Amber were the last persons to speak to Brian before he disappeared, showed that Brian did not enter the bar when he was seen walking out from the clip of the surveillance video, that many had speculated about and believed before. We now know that it stopped right outside the bar entrance in the foyer with Amber, while Brighton visited the restroom. When Brighton returns to the foyer minutes later, the girls say goodbye to Brian, leaving him on the foyer, as they head down the escalators. And the time is just 1.59am. Clint and Meredith were seen heading down the escalators at 2am, just a minute after the girls. We also know that Brian never went down the escalators. Detective John Edwards has said this is 100% established. So Brian stood leaning against that fake wall in the foyer that sealed the hall due to construction. The only plausible is that in the moment Clint and Meredith were on the way out of the bar, Brian must have exited and gone out that way. The moment after that, he probably also turned off his phone. Meredith had called him with Clint's phone at two o one, and that call had went straight to voicemail. So, why all this trouble then? Probably to avoid being discovered by Clint and Meredith, or Brian wanted to catch up with the band, or a combination of the two. His sudden exit could also have been an attempt to escape detection because he was overly intoxicated. There is even an expression in English for this, an Irish exit. For the staff and band, the reason of the exit through this fake wall was logistical. To get to the back of the building, where the loading dock was, to either pick up supplies, to go out with the garbage, or to pick and leave equipment of the bands. However, if we back the frame and tell about the layout again, so after that fake wall, you were met by the service elevator, which you took down to the ground floor, and then there was this long hallway that you had to go through. And at the end of the hallway you came to the trash area, and the back exit door, reaching the outside street. So a part of the hallway and the trash area prior of exiting were monitored by camera. And here you can see the band members and the other people, this is called fans, in the recordings. They were all identified the same way as the bar guests. Who left the property with escalators? So, all the people in the building at that hour have been identified or marked in the same way almost. And the only person missing, however you look at it, is Brian. So, when we come to this construction that was done in this ground floor, through parts of the hallway, there were barriers set up a kind of barricade of boards set up with a sign that this was a construction area. However, it wouldn't have been very difficult to get through this barrier, and once inside the construction area, there were a few ways to get out to the street. So you had these two exit doors, and Hurston mentioned that it wouldn't have been impossible to squeeze out through these doors if one absolutely wanted to get out. One of these exit doors was opposite Wendy's restaurant, and the other was at the current Jim and John's food service. So both these exits were without CCTV camera. Exiting at Jimmy and Jones, however, you ended up in a narrow street that was heading towards the loading docks of the back or the street entrance of the gateway building where the escalators were. Sort of a dead end. Inside this construction area, there was also an opening to the kitchen of the Mad Max restaurant. The chef had let this door open to vent the heat from the kitchen, and it wasn't guarded by anyone. If you had slipped out that way you could have made it through to the usual entrance of the restaurant if it had been open. John Hurst has said in interviews that the construction site was under heavy construction. Difficult to get through even in a sober state. The foundation had been completely excavated. Amongst other things an elevator shaft was being mounted. We also know that Brian had intended but did not plan in detail for an after-party at his house, in small hours. This had been communicated earlier in the day to other friends of his. The start signal for the party seemed to have been a feedback from Brian's side to his friends, but it never happened. So when they didn't hear any more from Brian, they just assumed that idea had sort of remained an idea. So one reasoning in this context might be that Brian Run away from Clint and Meredith because he didn't want them at his house where his party was supposed to be. He avoided their contact not only in the bar itself, but also tried to do so outside the gateway building and at the garage next to the building. Possibly he could have changed the route home to avoid being recognized if they went past him with the car. Thus, it was not physically impossible to get out of the gateway building and at the same time not being seen. Either there was a reason to do it, or it just happened. Either way, in this mysterious case, we're on two major tracks. One is that Brian made his way out of the gateway building to get home or somewhere else unnoticed, and something consequently happened to him. Or that Brian got out of the building in his way so as not to leave any trace and escape and leave everything behind. However, we must also take into consideration... The fact that at this time of the night, after almost 6-7 hours of drinking and a heavy week behind him with final exams, Brian must have been quite drunk and relatively unable to do anything like he could have done in a sober state. Unlike many others out that night, Brian had also lost his mother to cancer the weeks before, and he must have been drained emotionally in a way that cannot be compared as normal to anyone else. Brian had had periods in his life where he had faced problems with his drinking. We also know that he had been playing sports and had been physically active and in good shape for many years. This may have given him a false sense of security. Incapable of something that, in an unaffected state, would have seemed unreasonable. A drug that makes you fearless. Alcohol comes pretty high on that podium. He never made it to that part of the corridor that was monitored by camera. So he must have deviated before that. Inside that slack barrier and on that insidious track with the construction site and the completely dug up foundation. Difficult to navigate, even in a sober state, according to Detective John Hurst. Given his affected condition and compliant poor judgement, Brian probably assumed he could get out that way. And it's also not inconceivable that in his attempts to get out of the construction site, get injured in such a way that it wasn't possible for him to move on his own or call for help. He could have lost consciousness and been lying there never to recover and wake up. He may also have fallen on something that caused him to land so badly that he died instantly. Work on the construction site of the Gateway building continued on Monday, April the 3rd. Instead of being on a plane bound for Miami with Alexis, Brian might have been lying dead in a closed and presumably hidden part of this place, probably secluded enough to avoid being discovered by the construction workers who worked there. Construction had stopped in the late afternoon on that day after the Columbus police began searching for him. On Tuesday, or Wednesday, Randy wanted to bring his own search dogs into the building. All these patrols and canine units, with scent dogs and cadaver dogs, were deployed and searched the building. These dogs can be phenomenal at finding traces and scents, but in the same context, they're really only animals with a more sensitive smell than we humans. Not a guarantee that anything will be found. It was not yet known exactly what happened to Brian either. It took time for the Columbus police to completely rule out that Brian may have left in some other way than with the escalators. By then, the construction work had certainly resumed and traces of Brian gone. John Hurst has commented on the claims that Brian could have had an accident inside a construction site area and his body escaping detection. He has categorically denied that this is the case. They searched the building from top to bottom and looked in every nook and cranny. Someone would have noticed something if that had been the case. The thing is, however, if you knew then what you know today, you probably would have focused additional resources in this place, made it 100% that Brian wasn't there. Just like it had been done with Brian not leaving by the escalators. Furthermore, these pings, or seemingly the technical traces of Brian's phone, can be interference with the system as the operator maintained. In fact, they gave no clear evidence or clarification of any kind. John Hurst himself said that they did not expect the data response they had got from the phones. They were a little taken aback by it. Either way, they controlled this without success. Another thing in this context is that the signal from the phone could be around 20 miles away from the nearest tower. Brian's phone could have well have remained in a gateway complex construction site throughout that time, without leaving that area, and still provide this kind of signal that the Columbus police received from the operator singular. John Hurst now believes Brian got out of the gateway building, most likely by leaving the construction area. He clearly specified this was speculation, as there isn't anything to support this assumption. But when stating this, he used his own constructional words. The basic indication right now is somehow he got down into the construction area, and most likely got exited out of there. If we take this whole uh, scenario into consideration, we are faced with the unquestionable fact that Brian's body has never been found, which could actually be proof in itself that he's still alive. In addition to what has been discussed, the suicide theory has also emerged. Hurst has said that when he was asked if Brian could have committed suicide that night, he didn't think so, precisely because nobody had been found. The terrible thing about taking your own life and disappearing for your own eternal peace is not in itself a self-fulfilling purpose to allow your loved ones to float in this inscrutable uncertainty about one's own destiny. Most of the time, you want to let somebody else know. Perhaps with the same reasoning one can continue on the track that Brian ran away. If he did it this way to avoid attention, the results were exactly the opposite. People were looking for him then, and people continue to familiarize themselves with his case and look for him to this day. The idea to sneak out undetected has its share of mysticism, but it stops short of explaining why Brian stood in the foyer when he was captured by the CCTV footage five minutes earlier before he completely vanished. He didn't seem to care about it then. Brian had a million opportunities of living his old life to start anew. And a so flamboyant lifestyle has its own limits. Seemingly, running away from your problems doesn't necessarily mean they are disappearing. And is never always a successful way to make your way around the world either. And Brian had sooner or later run into problems again. ...that he could not have avoided. What suggests that Brian disappeared of his own accord... ...may be that Brian's medical studies proved to be too stressful for him. His mother's death created too much for him to deal with on his own... ...with the pressure that already was. In fact, he told Alexis in the days before his disappearance... ...that he wanted her to run away with him... ...and later that she could leave him. Alexis knows, however that Brian mentioned this in the heat of a moment and who hasn't ventilated matters they didn't really mean. Brian had gotten closer to his brother and his father after the passing of Rene, but in the earlier time frame, Brian was sort of separated from his closest relatives. It is now known that Brian had made frequent visits to Puerto Rico to conduct his internship in local clinics there as part of his med studies. And this had also distanced Brian from his regular life in Columbus. The Puerto Rico track was interesting enough that John Hurst at one stage applied to go there and investigate Brian's movement on the island. However, this was not granted. Probably didn't fit the budget CPD had for Brian's disappearance. However, there are a host of other indications that Brian had no plans to slip away and leave his whole life behind. The studies Brian struggled with for so many years and managed. The final exams that week before spring break that Brian struggled with and passed. The journey to a warm and sunny Florida with a girlfriend he seemingly loved. And that message to Alexis that he was looking forward to that trip posted on her MySpace page that night. Not to mention the logistical side of such a commitment as running away forever. Without any resources brought along and quite heavily influenced by alcohol. The option of foul play on the way home must also be mentioned. The road home towards King Avenue from the Gateway Complex was at night a notorious place for crime. Had Brian chose that path home, and had had the misfortune to suffer violence, he would not have had much to oppose in his condition. Perhaps we can supplement this more with some reasonable assumptions. Had there been a fatal attack on the street the perpetrator or perpetrators would probably have left his body behind and fled the fields themselves. In a house or any other type of premises they would have the moment to get rid of the body and be caught during this deed. Not to mention the problem of trying to hide a six foot two long man's body. It would have been difficult for one offender It's difficult on its own to make a body disappear completely without a trace. In the event there had been several people involved, perhaps over time someone would have indicated something on the other's complicit, and it would have surfaced what had happened. Brian could have been dumped in a dumpster. It could have been a safe bet for an asylum to hide his body there temporarily. But sooner or later, however, his body would have probably been found. Alexis and Randy had their own assumptions and searched dumpsters themselves on Sunday, and that work was then carried out in an organized manner by the Columbus Police Department. It was ruled out within a reasonable radius that Brian had not been dumped in a container. Later also, selected parts of the landfill where the area's waste ended up were also examined, just to be on a safe side that nothing had been missed. If Brian had been thrown into the Olentangy River, or for that matter, accidentally ended up there in that river that runs on that side of Columbus, he would also have been discovered. At most, the river was about a deep, but on average less than that. Regardless, more obscure parts of the river were searched by divers. The Olentangy River was also drained of water a decade later, when a dam was built in the area. Another person's body was then actually found. What could have made it more difficult to recover Brian's body is if, for example, he had jumped into a car and left with someone over a longer distance and away from the local area and the search zones. Maybe dumped in a ravine or buried in a grove or forest away from the city's attention. However, you would have to start looking at different motives out there to want Brian dead. He did not engage in in criminal activity or abuse, and he did not have a personal threat against him. He had also a stable relationship without complications of infidelity or similar elements. He also had no known assets at the time that could justify a crime similar to extortion or kidnapping. An accidental or unplanned slaying and a thorough concealment of the body of one individual is perhaps the closest we come in the foul play theory. For the Columbus police, foul play is one of the theories in Brian's disappearance. However, they have found no evidence to support this and as mentioned, no clear motive has been ruled in. Seemingly, Brian Schaefer seems to have disappeared in a black hole, devoured by something that pleased that it would remain so. Could it be that's what happened at the construction site? That it fell into something he couldn't get out of and has been there ever since? It cannot be ruled out that Brian escaped and left everything behind. I leave it to you to decide for yourself if Brian is alive somewhere and enjoys or doesn't enjoy life, That's nothing would have caused any harm. So, thank you so much for listening, and next time we dwell further into the parts of what could have happened to Brian. So I'll see you then. Bye.